like to begin by telling you the stories of two blind men. The first did not experience physical blindness until the end of his life. The second was born blind, but both provide a vivid illustration of spiritual blindness. First of these two men was born nearly 300 years ago in the year 1725. His mother died when he was young. And so at age 11, he joined his father who worked as a sailor. The young man spent his teenage years aboard sailing ships where he learned the life of a sailor. In fact, he learned that lifestyle so well, he gained a reputation even among sailors for having an especially foul mouth. In his young adulthood, he was conscripted into the British Royal Navy where he was made a midshipman until he was caught trying to desert And as his punishment, he was flogged in front of the entire crew and stripped of his rank. From there, he transferred to a slave ship, but he was unable to get along with the rest of the crew, so they left him in West Africa, where he found himself in forced servitude for a period of three years. Eventually, he was released was rescued by a sea captain that his father had sent looking for him. And upon returning to England, he continued to work in and on ships that were associated with the slave trade, an occupation that he would later in life come to deeply regret and openly detest. When we consider this period in this man's life, it's hard to imagine a more clear example of someone who was living enslaved to sin and in spiritual blindness. He was an immoral, unruly, foul-mouthed sailor who made his living in the horrors of human trafficking. And yet, God in his grace would intervene and open this man's eyes to the truth. That process began when his ship got caught in a violent storm off the coast of Ireland. Thinking he was going to drown, he cried out in desperation to God for mercy, and God unexpectedly allowed him to survive. But even though this event motivated him to clean up his act, he didn't fully understand the implications of the gospel. That understanding would come years later as he studied the word of God and became conformed to its truth. In 1754, he suffered a severe stroke. It forced him to leave sailing behind. He began to study Greek and Hebrew, and a decade later, he became a pastor. If you haven't guessed it already, the man I'm speaking about is the famous British pastor and abolitionist, John Newton. When he came to the end of his life, Newton's physical eyesight did fail him. He experienced the effects of blindness before he died in the year 1807. But if you had asked him about blindness, even at that point in his life, I don't think he would have talked much about his physical eyesight. Instead, he would have pointed to a period of his life in his younger years when his heart and mind were blinded by unbelief. As he said at the end of his life, although my memory is failing, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Those are the words of a man who once was blind but by God's grace, had come to see the truth in Christ. There's a second blind man that I'd like to tell you about this morning. Unlike John Newton, who experienced blindness at the end of his life, this man was born blind. But what both men have in common is the reality of spiritual blindness until God opened their eyes to the truth. We meet the second man in our passage 
John chapter 9. The title for our message this morning is Eyes to See. Eyes to See. And I'm using that title because it is a phrase that is found in Scripture to rebuke those who can see with their physical eyes and yet remain spiritually blind. They have eyes to see in the physical sense and yet they are imperceptive. They do not see spiritual realities. Jeremiah 5.21, the Lord condemned the unbelief of Judah. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see. Same thing is reiterated to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 12.2. God tells Ezekiel, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear. Jesus himself reiterated that truth. He actually quoted from Isaiah, but the same idea in Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, when he explained why he taught in parables, because the people do not have eyes to see. And Paul reiterated that point in Acts 28, 27, and again in Romans 11, verse 8, where he quoted from Deuteronomy 29, he said, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And I cite those examples simply to make the point that Scripture uses blindness as a metaphor for unbelief. There are many people in our own world today who see the physical world around them just fine, and yet they remained blind to spiritual reality. They have eyes to see, but they do not see. Same thing was true in Jesus' day. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Yet many of the people who heard Jesus say those words did not receive him. They did not embrace him in faith. They rejected him. They hardened their hearts in unbelief. text of John 9, which comes right after John 8, unfolds like a dynamic drama. It unfolds in seven scenes, and we're going to work our way through those seven scenes this morning. We'll organize our thoughts around those seven scenes. And each of these scenes presents a a vivid contrast between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. We'll have to work our way through this chapter somewhat quickly because it is a longer text. But as we go, scene by scene, we will be looking for those who had eyes to see. This unfolding drama begins in verses 1 to 7 with this first scene. I'm calling this scene the condition of of the blind man. The condition of the blind man, verses 1 to 7. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Well, let's stop there for a moment and consider the condition of this man. First, we notice that he is physically disabled. He was blind from birth. He had never seen anything in his entire life. Second, we learn that he was socially despised based on the disciples' question, which reflected really the attitude of most first century Jewish people, the idea that if someone had a physical infirmity, it must be a direct penalty for some sort of personal sin. And then in verse 8, we will learn that this man is also economically destitute. He has been a beggar his entire life, and he's forced to beg in order to stay alive. So here is this man in a hopeless condition. He is disabled. 
He is despised and he is destitute. And his condition meets, as we see there in verse 2, with contempt from the disciples. But thankfully, verse 3, it meets with compassion from the Savior. Look at our Lord's words, starting in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Immediately, our Lord puts to rest the notion that it was this man's transgression or his parents' iniquity that resulted in his blindness. Rather, this man's condition is a means by which God will display his glory. Someone with vision issues myself, I'm grateful for Jesus' answer in verse 3. Though personal sin can have physical consequences, and we see that at times throughout Scripture, it's wrong to assume that every infirmity is due to some sinful action. And the disciples should have known this. They were familiar with famous Old Testament figure of Job, who is a shining example of one who suffered, but not because of his sin, but so that God's glory might be displayed. Well, Jesus continues in verses 4 and 5, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In verse 4, our Lord is speaking about the time remaining that he has with his disciples in his earthly ministry as he anticipates the cross. And in verse 5, he reiterates that earlier declaration from John 8, 12. He is the light of the world. And he will display the truth of that statement by doing two things for this blind man. Healing him physically and illuminating him spiritually. What better way to demonstrate that Jesus is the light of the world then by miraculously healing a blind person. Well, the scene continues in verse 6. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to this man's eyes. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and he came back seeing much like he had done in Genesis 2, verse 7, on the sixth day of creation. The Lord took dust from the ground and he formed it into clay. I imagine it as him forming brand new eyes for this blind man. And he placed it on the man's face. And then he sent him to the pool of Siloam, I love the fact that it means sent because that's what happens in this passage. He sent him. The pool of Siloam is in the city of Jerusalem near the old city of David. It was the, the place where water was drawn for the vessels that were used at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, it was at that feast back in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, that Jesus declared that he is the water of life referring to the water that came from that pool. So here we have in John 9, 7, the light of the world sending this man to go wash in the water that Jesus had earlier used to symbolize the reality that he is the water of life. It's amazing. And being so instructed, this man obeys. I love how the end of verse 7 just is so understated about what happened He went, he washed, and he saw. A man who had never seen anything in his entire life now has perfect vision. This confirms that Jesus is precisely who he claims to be. He is the light of the world. He is the water of life. He is the Messiah who has come to work the works of the Father. And in keeping with the title of our message this morning, we 
will ask this question a number of times, but we can ask this question of the blind man. Did he have eyes to see? Well, the obvious answer at the beginning of the chapter is no. No, the the blind man did not have eyes to see, either physically or spiritually. He was blind from birth. But then the Lord gave him eyes to see. At this point, physically, and a little bit later, spiritually. So verses 1 to 7 present for us the condition of this blind man. Disabled, despised, destitute. Who after experiencing the compassion of the Savior is given eyes to see. Brings us to our second scene in this passage. Scene two, the confusion of the neighbors. The confusion of the neighbors. I love this because it's just so stereotypical of neighbors to be curious and confused. Verse eight, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. But others were saying, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the guy. Verse 10, so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he said, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. In this scene, we meet the man's neighbors, those who had walked past him day after day as he begged by the side of the road. And like the disciples, they probably assumed that his condition was the result of some sort of transgression, either his or his parents. So when he showed up seeing, some of them question if he's really the same guy. Amazing how they could walk past him so frequently and never really stop to know who he was. According to verse 9, some of them recognize him, others aren't sure. He insists that he really is the person who was formerly blind, but their response to the miracle that's standing in front of them is not belief, it's skepticism. That's why they ask him all these questions. Are you really that guy? Verse 10, how did this happen to you? Verse 12, where's the person who helped you see? Of course, the blind man doesn't have an answer to that final question because when he and Jesus first met, he was blind and he didn't see where Jesus had gone. But I want to stop and just reflect on the neighbor's response, they are given the rare privilege of witnessing a bona fide miracle and they totally miss it. For years, day after day, they've seen this man begging. They probably knew him from childhood. This is the blind boy who grew up as an outcast in our community. And he came back from the pool of Siloam, I'm sure, ecstatic, He had been blind. Now he can see. His neighbors are surely going to be so excited for him. No. Instead of being met with joy and wonder, he's met with incredulity and disbelief. And so we ask the question of these neighbors. Did they have eyes to see? Well, physically, yes. But spiritually, no. They're blinded by their skepticism. And as a result, they miss the meaning of the miracle that again was standing right in front of them. The condition of the man, the confusion of his neighbors. We come to a third scene in verses 13 to 17. Scene three in this passage, this unfolding drama, the consternation of, of the Pharisees, the consternation of the Pharisees, verses 13 to 17. Not knowing what to think, these neighbors take this man to the experts. 
Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and now I see. Jesus had performed other miracles on the Sabbath. In fact, back in John 5, Jesus healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And he told the man, you'll remember this, to take up your bed and walk. And the man did. And the Pharisees got really upset because they claimed that carrying your bed was a violation of Sabbath regulations. But the Sabbath rules that the Pharisees sought to enforce were not biblical. They were rabbinic traditions. They were added regulations. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, Jesus directly confronted the Pharisees for adding these extra biblical rules to their Sabbath practice. He told them, you have elevated the traditions of men above the word of God. He issued a similar rebuke in John 7, verse 23, noting the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because they would perform circumcisions on the Sabbath. Jesus says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? This just doesn't make any sense. Jesus' miracles on the Sabbath demonstrated two realities. Number one, that he is the creator and the Lord of the Sabbath. And number two, that the religious leaders were steeped in hypocrisy and legalism. Here in John 9, that same rabbinical tradition was a stumbling block for these Pharisees. They just can't get past it. Look at verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man, meaning Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner or a false teacher perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Caught on their rabbinic tradition, they find themselves lost in the weeds. A guy who is blind can see, and all they can think about is, did he keep the Sabbath? And not the biblical regulations and rules, but our rabbinic traditions. Well, they can't decide, and undecided, they turn to the blind man. Who do you think Jesus was? Verse 17, they said to him, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now remember, at this point, the blind man's eyes have been opened physically. He still does not yet possess a full understanding of who Jesus is. But he knows enough to know that Jesus is from God. And so he answers by saying, Well, he is a prophet. And while that answer is not the complete picture of who Jesus is, because Jesus is far more than merely a prophet, this man's answer was decidedly better than the uncertainty and the unbelief of the scholars who questioned him. So we can ask our question of the Pharisees in this scene, Did they have eyes to see? Well, the answer, like the man's neighbors, is no. No, they did not. The neighbors were blinded by their skepticism. The Pharisees were blinded by religious tradition. They couldn't see past it. And they missed the meaning of the miracle. Well, the drama continues in verses 18 to 23, where we come to a fourth scene in our unfolding drama. Scene four, the cowardice of the parents. The cowardice of the parents, verses 18 to 23. Verse 18, the Jews, that's a reference to the religious leaders. The Jews then did not believe it of this man that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Doubtful that this man was telling the truth, the Pharisees went to find his parents to interrogate them. 
And what should have been a moment of great rejoicing and relief for these parents who had lived with the sorrow of having had a disabled child in that kind of a society for all of those years, instead of this being a moment of joy, it turns into a tense moment of intimidation. Is this your son? Was he really blind? How did he receive his sight? You can hear the intimidation in the questions being asked, and you can sense its effect in the answers being given. Look at verse 20. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He's an adult. He'll speak for himself. Rather than volunteer information, his parents plead the fifth. And in case we are unsure how they were feeling, the text tells us in verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, that person would be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. To be put out of the synagogue was to be excommunicated, not just from the religious life of Israel, but from social life as well. It, it would mean to be shunned, cast out, cut off. And this man's parents were not willing to risk that. So they answered as little as possible. We don't know anything. Yeah, he's our son. Yeah, he was blind. We don't know anything else. And their cowardice illustrates a third reason for unbelief. Because if we ask the question of these parents, did they have eyes to see? We must again answer in the negative. They looked at what it would cost them to identify with Christ, and they decided it was a price too high to pay. They did not have eyes to see because they were blinded by the fear of man. Verses 1 to 7, the condition of the man. Verses 8 to 12, the confusion of his neighbors. Verses 13 to 17, the consternation of the Pharisees. Verses 18 to 23, the cowardice of the parents. And now scene five, the condemnation of the synagogue officials. The condemnation of the synagogue officials in verses 24 to 34. Having interviewed the parents, the religious leaders called the man back for a second time. This group now included the rulers of the synagogue, those who had the power to put people out of the synagogue, something we'll see in verse 34. And the investigation continues. Verse 24, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. The irony of that statement is so rich in this passage because if we look back at verse three, we see that Jesus said that the reason that this man had been born blind was so that God would receive glory and his works would be displayed. And now the religious leaders are telling this man, give glory to God. Oh, he will, just not in the way that they're expecting. And then they articulate their unbelief. We know that this man, a reference to Jesus, is a sinner. And by sinner, they mean someone who was a wicked man, a, a false teacher. The irony is thick in this verse. The leaders of the synagogue demand that God give, that this man give God the glory, and that's exactly what he does in his answer. He answers with such boldness. I love this. Verse 25. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Again, he doesn't have a full understanding of who Jesus is. That's still coming. But one thing I do know, 
that though I was blind, now I see. This man has one truth and he's clinging to it. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I think you have to appreciate the frustration that this blind man is feeling, formerly blind man, is feeling at this point. He goes to the, he's spent his entire life not being able to see. He goes and washes in the pool of Siloam. Suddenly he has 20-20 vision. He is ecstatic. He comes home and no one believes that it's even him. That's not you. And he's like repeating the story time after time. No, he made clay. He put it on my face. I went, I washed, I see. He's told the religious leaders at least twice. They're like, tell us again. He's like, I told you already, verse 27, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples, do you? Well, you have to admire his boldness for a guy who just gained sight. He calls it as he sees it. And he recognized their unbelief and he responds with some incredulity of his own. How is it possible that the religious leaders in Jerusalem could be so dense? The Old Testament promised that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. At the very least, anyone who could do this was obviously empowered by God. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, both are messianic promises that when Messiah comes, he will cause the blind to see. And yet, in spite of such evidence, these Old Testament experts are not impressed with this man's answer. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. In fact, it's emphatic in the Greek. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but if As for this man, we do not know where he is from. Seeking to defend their position, they retreat to Moses, implying that there's some sort of discrepancy between what Jesus has done and what Moses wrote. Of course, there is no discrepancy between Jesus and Moses. In fact, Moses pointed to Jesus Jesus made that point at the end of John 5. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. But amazingly, these leaders, while they acknowledge that Moses came from God, they don't know where Jesus is from. The obvious implication is that they don't believe he's from God or from heaven. And the former blind man, he can't believe what he's hearing and So this uneducated, lifelong beggar responds by making a profound theological point. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, well, there is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, wicked people, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, God hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I love this. I'm sure as he's talking, some of these religious leaders are giving him dirty looks. But remember, he only got his sight a couple hours before. He'd never seen dirty looks before. He's just going for it. In the Old Testament, some of the prophets performed miraculous signs, including healing miracles, healing from leprosy, even bringing some people back from death. But there's no one in the Old Testament who was ever healed from being born blind. The closest we get is in 2 Kings 6, when Elisha temporarily blinded his enemies And then they regained their sight later. But restoring sight to those with congenital blindness, this was a miracle reserved only for the Messiah. It's a miracle that uniquely marks the ministry of Jesus. And the gospel records, the gospels 
record some 25 different incidents in which Jesus healed people. And of those 25, four of those occasions involving six different individuals were him healing people of blindness. This man was one of those six individuals. And the momentous nature of his experience is not lost on him, even if it's completely lost on the people that he's talking to. And so he recognizes three theological truths. Number one, only God's power can accomplish this kind of miracle. Number two, God does not empower the wicked or false teachers. Number three, therefore, Jesus must be from God because he is empowered by God to do these kinds of works. Well, that kind of logic didn't sit well with the synagogue officials. And so in verse 34, if you can't answer with a reason, you attack the person. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And you are teaching us? So they put him out, meaning they excommunicated him from the synagogue. This formerly blind man becomes the first person to be excommunicated from the synagogue because of his association with Jesus. There would be others, of course, as our Lord himself would promise and predict in John 16, verse 2, He told his disciples that they would be cast out of the synagogues for his name's sake. This man serves as the prototype for later Jewish Christians who experienced that very kind of persecution. Even now, he did not fully understand the truth about Jesus, but he knew enough to know that Jesus was from God and he knew enough to know that these religious leaders were missing the point. I love what he said back in verse 25. I once was blind, but now I see. As for these synagogue officials, if we ask our repeated question, did they have eyes to see? No. No, what they saw with their physical eyes, a man born blind, miraculously healed, they had no ability or desire to understand in the spiritual sense. Despite lifetimes of religious study, they did not have eyes to see. They were blinded by spiritual pride, unwilling to listen to a man who they considered beneath them. Brings us to scene six in our unfolding drama. This really is the climactic scene of the narrative, scene six the conversion of the sinner, the conversion of the sinner in verses 35 to 38. Again, up to this point, the formerly blind man has only had a a partial understanding of who Jesus is. He recognizes that Jesus is from God, but he doesn't have a full comprehension of the truth about Jesus. And here Jesus meets him and gives him full clarity. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out of the synagogue and finding the blind man, Jesus said to him, do you believe in the son of man? That title son of man comes straight out of Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. It is an unmistakably messianic title. The man's response indicates that he had not yet fully understood who Jesus is. And so verse 36, he answered, who is he, Lord? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Perhaps the blind man did not recognize Jesus because he had been blind when they first met. Or or perhaps he did know that it was Jesus, but he just didn't fully understand that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the Messiah. In any case, our Lord in his compassion, having opened this man's eyes physically, is now pleased to impart to him spiritual vision. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. Amazing. Amazing. In that moment, Jesus revealed himself to this man. 
And although when we read John 9, we may be tempted to think that the most amazing miracle in the chapter is back in verse 7 when the man went and washed and suddenly he could see after a lifetime of blindness. But the truth is that the real miracle, they're both real miracles, the most amazing miracle is here in this verse. The miracle of regeneration wasn't just his face that was washed in that moment. It was his heart that was washed, his conscience cleansed, the eyes of his heart opened, and suddenly a man who had been blind both physically and spiritually could see not only the world around him, but the reality of who was standing before him, the Messiah himself. And how does he respond? In faith and worship, verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So we come back to the question that we've been asking in each of these successive scenes this morning. Did this man have eyes to see? And the answer finally is yes. Yes, our Lord gave him eyes to see. First, he gave him eyes to see the physical world, and then he gave him eyes to understand spiritual truth. And isn't it ironic that the only person in this entire chapter who has eyes to see is the blind guy? At the beginning of the story, he was the only person who could not see. By the end of the story, he's the only person who has truly seen What a rebuke to the religious leaders. They thought they had eyes to see, but they kept closing their eyes to the truth. It's on that note that we come to the final section here, the final scene. The tragic irony of the Pharisees' unbelief is what we uncover in these final verses. We've seen the condition of the man, the confusion of his neighbors, the consternation of the Pharisees, the cowardice of his parents, the condemnation of the synagogue officials, the conversion of the sinner, and now scene seven, the charade of the self-righteous. The charade of the self-righteous, verses 39 to 41 This amazing drama ends with a stunning contrast between a blind man who truly sees and some seeing people who are truly blind. Here we see the counterfeit righteousness of the religious leaders. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind Our Lord, of course, came into this world to seek and to save the lost. But the flip side of that truth is that those who refuse to believe are under judgment. And that was the case for these religious leaders. Jesus makes the point that those who recognize their spiritual blindness, those who recognize that they are destitute, that they are disabled, that they are dead in their sins and cry out to God for mercy and cling to Christ as their only hope. It is for them that he brings spiritual sight. He opens the eyes of their hearts so that they may see. And the blind man in this passage is a vivid illustration of that reality. But for those who claim to be spiritually perceptive, thinking that they already see. They don't have a need for a savior. They, they're safe in their own self-righteousness, or so they think. Well, their hearts are blinded by their own unbelief. They claim to be able to see, but in reality, they are blind. So that even after witnessing a remarkable miracle, as is recorded in this chapter, the religious leaders still don't get it. Look at verses 40 and 41. Those of the Pharisees who are with him, perhaps some of the same group earlier in the chapter, perhaps others. But they heard these things and they said to him, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said, 
if you were blind, in other words, if you recognized your spiritual blindness, you would have no sin. He's referring to the sin of unbelief. Your unbelief would be gone if you recognized that you were blind. But since you say we see, since you think you're fine without a savior, your unbelief, your sin remains. What a rebuke. And so in this seventh and final scene, we ask the question one more time. Did these Pharisees have eyes to see? They thought they did. They were Old Testament experts. They understood the intricacies of the religious requirements and regulations. And yet it was because they trusted in that that they were unwilling to recognize their spiritual ruin, unwilling to acknowledge their need for Christ. And as a result, they failed to recognize the light of the world when he was standing right in front of them. Well, we've made our way quickly through this chapter, seven scenes that contrast the eyes of belief from the blindness of unbelief. Along the way, we've met a number of characters, a man with a physical condition, a savior who showed genuine compassion, neighbors who were curious and confused, Pharisees who felt a sense of consternation, parents who capitulated out of cowardice, synagogue officials who confronted and condemned, a formerly blind man who converted to Christ and came to saving faith. And by contrast, a group of counterfeit religious leaders who maintained a superficial charade, charade of self-righteousness. It's quite an eventful narrative. But having walked through this chapter, we are now able to conclude by making two general observations about it. First, this chapter reveals the character of spiritual blindness. Why is it that some people refuse to see? The neighbors were blinded by skepticism, the Pharisees by religious tradition, the parents by the fear of men, the synagogue officials by spiritual pride, and the final group of Pharisees by their own self-righteousness. Those are the same reasons today that people willfully reject and close their eyes in unbelief to the truth of the gospel. But second, this chapter also teaches us about the nature of salvation and spiritual sight. Again, I love the irony of this passage that the only person who really sees the truth is a man who was born blind. But you'll notice in verse 1, I think this is amazing, it was Jesus who saw this man obviously. But it was Jesus who saw him and initiated contact. The man did not see Jesus. Jesus saw the man and the Lord initiated the encounter. And in verse three, we learn that God had foreordained this encounter for his glory so that his works might be displayed. And so verses one through seven really tell us about the man whom Jesus saw. And then verses 35 to 38 tell us about the man who saw Jesus. But even then, it was our Lord who initiated contact. He was the one who reached out, who met the man, and who revealed the truth about himself to the man so that the man might understand and believe. What a glorious picture that is of our salvation. We were blind. We were disabled. We were destitute. We were despised. We were dead. And the Savior saw us. And he had compassion for us. And he gave us eyes to see so that we might look to him and be saved, embracing him as the light of the world the only way of salvation. 
having been given eyes to see, then we are able to say with the blind man in verse 25, I once was blind, but now I see. Well, we began this morning with the story of John Newton, a man who walked in spiritual darkness for the first half of his life until God intervened and rescued him. And I chose Newton's story not only because it's dramatic, but because he came to recognize the weight of his spiritual blindness later in life. In the 1770s, as a pastor in England, he worked with an English poet named William Cowper to produce a book of hymns. And that book was first published in 1779, and we find several of his hymns in that collection Some of these names are names you might recognize. Glorious things of thee are spoken. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Faith's Review and Expectation, or as we know it, Amazing Grace. We sang those words this morning, but how rich they are when we consider them against the backdrop of John 9. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, it saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. From John 9 to John Newton to us today, the Lord Jesus Christ offers spiritual sight to all who look to him. And so we must ask our question one more time. Do you have eyes to see? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world so that we who were spiritually blind might receive sight, that we might be given eyes to see the truth, not because of anything inherently good or worthy in us, but only because of your mercy and grace. And what hope there is in the gospel that all who look to Christ in saving faith will live. They will see the truth. And one day they will see the Savior face to face. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. Until then, may we be found faithful by your grace and for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.